Amen. You may be seated. So as I said at the start of our service, we are in this series called A Rising Tide, in which we're looking at things like accountability, community, and what it means to do life together. Uh, I've often heard it said um, that uh, each the, the tide raises all boats, and that's basically what we're talking about, that when we understand who we are as Christians, when we understand the gospel, it raises us all up, but we do that together in community. We have this phrase, you can't grow spiritually unless you're connected relationally, and that's what we're going to be talking about a little bit this morning. But I think it's right that before we dive into our message, we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the word that he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray together with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that you have gathered us together in this uh, space as your people. And so as we come before your word, Lord, we pray that you would teach us, that you would guide and direct us, that you would use this time to shape our hearts, to form our community, to help us understand what it means to follow you. And so, Lord, um, open our hearts and minds to receive that message. And God, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as I was thinking about the title of this series, I couldn't help but think about something that's baffled historians down through the centuries. And that is, how do we account for the rapid rise of the early church in the first century? I mean, one of the things that's undeniable when you look at the history of the Western world is that over the course of about three centuries, Christianity went from being this minority subset of a religion to to overtaking the entire Roman world. But the question is, how did that happen? I mean, at first glance, even by the Bible's own description of the early church, this was an extremely unlikely group of people to transform the trajectory of an empire. First and foremost, it's because their founder was actually executed as a common criminal. He was crucified. And he was a guy who claimed that he was God in the flesh. That he was the almighty God of the universe, now come to dwell with his people. And yet, suddenly, on Friday, he's nailed to a uh, a cross, breathes his last, and is buried. Furthermore, uh, among his followers, only the most devoted were left uh, after that horrible uh, incident. We're told it's only about 120 to 150 were left. And yet, those 120 to 150 insisted that three days after their founder was executed, he rose again from the dead, that he was alive again. And they proclaimed that he wasn't just their savior, he was the savior of the entire world. But what's nuts about this group of people who are proclaiming this is that none of them were among the elite. By their own accounts, they were not well-educated. They weren't among the religious insiders. They started as a subset of Judaism, which was already a minority religion within the Roman world. Not popular, not well-liked, many of them with questionable backgrounds. Many of them seen as outcasts by their own society. And yet, over the course of three centuries... They exploded out of Jerusalem and took their message to North and Central Africa, to Persia, to India, to Europe, to Asia, to countries in far-flung places, to the point where eventually Christianity became the official religion of the Roman world. 
How does that happen? I believe the answer is actually given to us in our passage for this morning from Acts chapter 2, where we actually get our very first description of this early Christian community that we find in the Bible. Here's what it says. In any other words, Peter warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Daily, those who were being saved. Why? Well, because there was something about this community that was unlike anything anyone had ever seen before. And I think the clue that we get is in that word devoted. You see, the word devoted, every time it shows up in the scriptures, it means to give something totally over to something else. That's the, that's the only context in which it's used, is to devote something means that you give it wholly and without conditions to something else. And what do we see that they are devoted to? Well, they're certainly devoted to the teaching of the apostles, right? Those, those leaders that Christ himself had appointed to go and, and proclaim the good news. They're devoted to that teaching, to the proclamation of that gospel, and to, the, and to those leaders who are kind of leading them and helping form their community. But what's crazy is, is that for them, to be devoted wasn't simply mean to agree to certain doctrinal ideas or theological principles. It overflowed in their devotion to one another. Because that's what the rest of the passage is about. In fact, in only a few short verses, it says together over and over and over again. It says all the believers were together and had everything in common. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Together, 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 together. They did together, together. Everything that they did was together. That's what it looked like for them to be devoted to one another. And what's so mind-blowing about this is we have to remember who we're talking about. Because at this point, the church now is not just those, those initial uh, 100 plus believers in Jesus. Pentecost has taken place. And at Pentecost, people from all over the Roman world had come to Jerusalem on pilgrimage. And many of them had believed in the message that was proclaimed. We're told that 3,000 had been added to their number. So what we're talking about is not just this 120 to 150 group of outcasts. We're now talking about men and women from every cultural, racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic background in the known Roman world suddenly living life together, devoted to one another. That those who had property and possessions were willing to sell them in order to meet the needs of those who had none. That these people from different backgrounds and different classes were opening their homes and celebrating a meal together. See, in the ancient world, to celebrate a meal, to break bread, to have fellowship with someone was an intimate thing to welcome them into your home. It was essentially to embrace them as family. And that's what we find them doing. Now, I think that, that we, in our modern American world, we don't understand just how crazy this was. 
And the reason why is because in many ways we've inherited many of, the, many of our assumptions today from this early Christian community. You look at it, it's like, well, oh yeah, there's poor people, they're helping the poor people. And, and, and yeah, there's people of different racial backgrounds uh, interacting and loving each other and serving one another, living as neighbors. Like, that, that doesn't seem so strange. Is, aren't we all supposed to do that anyways? Yeah, well, yeah, but where did that idea come from? Right here. This is new. Because in the Roman world, this is not how you interacted with people. In the ancient Roman world, we need to understand that the ancient Roman world was a highly stratified society, which meant that you only hung out with people from your social class, you only hung out with people from your ethnic and cultural backgrounds, you only helped and served the other people who were just like you, who may have come upon hard times. It was a society that was evenly and neatly, well, not evenly, but very neatly and distinctly divided between the haves and the have-nots, between the ins and the outs, between those who are us and those who are them all over the Roman world. That's the way that they operated. And the assumption that I would then care about, much less meet the needs of somebody who's different from me, was not everybody's assumption. In fact, it was nobody's assumption. In his book, uh, known as Dominion, the, The Formation of the Western Mind, historian Tom Holland says this about the ancient world, both Greeks and Romans. He said, you need to understand the heroes of the Iliad Favorites of the gods, golden and predatory, had scorned the weak and the downtrodden. So too, for all the honor that Julian paid them, had philosophers. The starving deserved no sympathy. Beggars were best rounded up and deported. Pity risked undermining a wise man's self-control. Only fellow citizens of good character, who through no fault of their own had fallen on evil days, might conceivably merit assistance. Might conceivably merit assistance. See, what Tom Holland noted as he studied the ancient world is that it was a dog-eat-dog world. It was very distinctly divided between groups of people and social classes. And there was no assumption of of the general universal dignity of all people. It didn't exist. I actually remember when this first hit home for me. I was actually in a Western civilizations class, and we were reading through the Iliad. And we came to this one part in the Iliad where the Trojan hero Hector comes to fight the Greek hero Achilles. And they're standing facing off against one another. And before they fight, Hector gives this great speech in which he basically tells Achilles, he says, let us make a pact to you and I, that whoever is victorious will show honor to the slain. That we will hand over the, the, the loser's body to his family and we will ensure that he is buried with dignity and honor before the gods. And Achilles looks back at Hector and he sneers and he says, What pact do lions make with lambs? For this day I will cut you down in the presence of the gods and I will drag your carcass around this city as a testimony to them. Now my professor, somebody who is well versed in in the ancient world, she asked us a question. She said, so who's the hero here? Everybody in the class was like, Hector. I mean, this guy, look at him. He's like, he's got a man of ethics and principles. He's, he's a dude who's, who's willing to show honor and dignity to the losers, a, a, a guy who's willing to make a deal even with his enemies. And she's just like, that's interesting that you guys assume that. That's not at all what they would have assumed the original uh, listeners of this epic. The person they would have been cheering was Achilles. Because that's what heroes do. They win. And they kill weak people. And they conquer. And they establish kingdoms. And anybody who's a loser, 
Anyone who doesn't have, anyone who fails, well, that's their fate. They're fated to that by the gods. The assumption that there should be a pact between enemies was ridiculous. It was insane. It was nuts. You didn't associate with people like you. You don't care about people like you. And yet along comes this scrappy little bunch of people who dare to say that, no, every human being is worthy of equal dignity and honor because everyone is made in the image of God. That we all live in a broken world. We have a God who has compassion on the weak, who seeks to raise them up and show mercy and extend grace and favor to them. And this offended the principles and the assumptions of the Roman world. In fact, one early uh, opponent of Christians was a man by the name of uh, Lucian of Samosata. And this is what he said. He said their founder, he's talking about Christians. He says their founder, Jesus, taught them that they should be like brothers to one another and therefore they despise their own privacy and view their possessions as common property. This was a criticism. He said, this is ridiculous. If, if, they, if we're to take this seriously, if we're actually to put this, it's going to destabilize our entire system. It's going to destabilize our economy. It's going to destabilize our politics. It's going to destabilize our empire. It's going to undermine our strength. I mean, this is just nuts. We can't allow these people to continue to live this way. It's dangerous. So ingrained was this idea in the Roman world. And along, though, come these Christians who are devoted to one another. We say crazy things like, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed, clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Just look, all the walls and the invisible fences that our world throws up, all the walls and the invisible fences that we erect between ourselves in Jesus, they're all knocked down. They're all removed. Because when you are in Christ, you are now part of a new family. And we treat each other as brothers and sisters here. We don't just look to the needs of me and mine. We don't just look to the needs of the people who are like us. Rather, we lay down everything we have. We devote it to each other. That's how deep their common life went. See, I don't think that we've really wrestled <laughs> as a Western society with the fact that the only reason that things like hospitals and food pantries and orphanages exist is because of the church that we find described in Acts chapter 2. It was Christians who started the first hospitals Christians who started the first leper colonies. Christians who started the first orphanages. Christians who started selling their possessions and giving to the poor, providing jobs to the outcast and the downtrodden. It was Christians who did that. It was the church that did that. It was this community that did that. Things that we now take for granted weren't taken for granted back then. And in fact, so successful was it in reaching the Roman world that it was actually a couple centuries later that, that one of the advisors to a Roman emperor who's trying to stamp out the, this rapidly growing church said, well, you know what we got to do if we're really going to like compete with these Christians is we actually need to start caring about each other. 
because, uh, because they care about people better than we care about people. So, so we should start hospitals and, and we should have orphanages and, and we should have like, you know, uh, have like a tax so that we're all taxing and then we're giving those taxes to the poor and setting up like welfare programs and stuff like that. Do you want to know what? They tried it and it didn't work because they hadn't been captivated by the God who himself devotes himself to us. You see, that's the thing that was at the heart of this community. They understood what God had done for them and it so captivated them that it transformed how they behaved toward one another. The grace that they preached about was embodied in the community that they lived in. And I think that that's something that our world desperately needs today. Because on the one hand, we have incredible access to each other now, right? Through things like social media. I mean, never before on the face of the planet could you actually figure out like what's going on in the daily life of your friends and your family uh, from states away. I mean, you can open Instagram and you can scroll through their feeds and see what they're doing on a daily basis, even to what they're eating. People take really nice pictures of the food, by the way. Like, if you're going on a diet, don't go on Instagram. Right? But that, that's what we do. So it's like, oh, well, we're close. You know, we have connections with each other, but do we? I mean, stop and think about this for a second. Every time you look at somebody's Facebook page or their Instagram feed, what are you actually looking at? You're looking at a carefully curated museum to the life that they want you to see. That's what that is. You don't actually know each other. We only see the best things that we want other people to see. Maybe that's why I don't post so much on Instagram anymore. There's not a whole lot of cool stuff to see in our life, right? <laughs> it's just life is crazy and messy, right? But if it's true, that's what you see on Instagram. That's where these beautifully curated lives that we're presenting to each other. And furthermore, what we've seen is what has social media actually done? It's actually exacerbated the, different, uh, the, the differences between us, hasn't it? The fissures between us have only gotten deeper and more tense, whether it's based on politics or economics or race or social issues, whatever it is. You know, they've, they've all been exacerbated by social media. I was actually joking with somebody just yesterday. He said, you know, when I was growing up, there were two things you couldn't talk about at the dinner table. It was politics and religion. But nowadays, like, the list is so complicated, uh, we just don't talk anymore. We just sit there and eat our food. There's so much we can't talk about now because people get offended and we're getting mad at each other and we don't actually assume that the other person has our best interests at heart even when they're telling us that they do because of the assumptions that we've built around each other. I wonder if we've lost what it means to truly be devoted to one another. To give each other the benefit of the doubt. To lay down what I have in order for your good to not consider what I want or what my rights are or what I would prefer to do, but rather to ask the question, how might I give in order to serve the other person? Because that's what it looks like to be devoted to one another. That's what the early church put into practice, what they understood. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.8, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. He understood that the proclamation of the gospel had to be both in words and in deeds. Both in what we said to each other, but also how we treated one another. He said, that's how we proclaim good news to you. It's because we loved you so much. I don't have time to go into all the New Testament letters but a good exercise for you at some point is to read through all the New Testament letters where Paul's writing to other churches and to underline every time he gives you a one another. Do this to one another. Do this to one another. What you will see over and over and over again 
is this radical idea that we don't insist on our own rights and on our own needs, but rather we give to one another. We forgive one another. We're reconciled to each other. We serve each other on and on and on and on. And I think our world of division and conflict desperately needs a community that looks like that. Desperately needs a community where grace and service to one another is the utmost value because it flows from the God who only showed us grace and served us. That's what we need. That's what our world is looking for, right? World of brokenness, we need people who love each other so much that we're delighted to not only share the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Romans tried it without actually believing in it. It didn't work. That's why I find it funny today when people are like, well, I can embrace Christian values even if I don't actually believe in God or Jesus. Well, it didn't, didn't actually work before. I really don't think it's going to work again. I mean, you can do that. Uh, it's a free country. You don't have to be consistent. That's what they were called to here is to realize that the only way you do that is by realizing that that's the God that we have. The God that we proclaim in Romans 8, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Look, brothers and sisters, this is the God we worship. A God who had everything, and yet was willing to enter into the world to rescue those who had nothing. A God who is perfect and holy, and yet left his throne to reach broken, a God who dwelled in light and yet was willing to enter into our world of darkness to welcome us in as family, a God who didn't consider his own rights, but for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. He did all that for you, for me. When you behold the God at the center of what it is we believe, how can we do anything less in our relationships with one another? How can we do anything less but be devoted to each other in ways that reflect that kind of goodness and mercy, kindness and hospitality, service and community? This is a reason why we at this church say things like you can't grow spiritually unless you're connected relationally. It's the reason why we talk about values like accountability and community Small groups and serving and generosity. Why do we call, did we just like pick those seven because we thought it would be cool? No, it's because we read Acts 2. We say, this is what we're called to give to one another. This is who we are. This is what it means to be a part of this community, not just here at Trinity, but to be a part of the church, to be a Christian. Is to be so captivated by that story of God that it infuses everything that we do. So what does that look like in practice? If there were a couple of takeaways, what would, what would that mean? First and foremost, do you know the, level, the depth of God's love for you, the lengths that he was willing to go to serve you? If you haven't, this is an invitation to go back and once more behold Jesus and to be captivated by the beauty of the ways in which he poured out his life for us. But secondly, to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean for me to be devoted to those around me? Are there parts of my life that are off limits that I'm not willing to share? 
where I'm not willing to serve, where I'm not willing to give. And to ask myself the question, if I truly behold Jesus, what would it look like to be devoted in that area of my life? Are there relationships that are difficult? Christians, that we, fellow Christians that we've had a hard time talking to or being honest with, that we realize, you know, maybe rather than unfriending them on Facebook or just leaving the church and not telling anybody or ranting about it on Instagram or Twitter, maybe I need to pick up the phone and call them. Invite them over to my home for dinner. Set a meal before them and we should talk and sort it out. Because when we do, we're putting into practice Matthew 18, what Jesus tells us to do. As we think about those questions, the foundational question needs to be to become, what does it truly mean to be devoted to one another in the way that reflects the devotion that Jesus has for us? Because when we do so, we are indeed living out a calling that not only will change our lives and the tenor of our community, but one which can, has the power to reshape a world that is broken by division and desperately longs to see a vision of a community where grace is embodied. So it's with that in mind I wanted to pray. Lord, it's a tall order to live into that kind of community, and yet it becomes so much easier when we stop and behold you. You who did not consider equality with your father something to be grasped, but rather humbled yourself, taking on the very nature of a slave. You who were born in human likeness, became obedient even to death on a cross for us. Lord, when we see you, how can we do anything less in our relationships with one another? May that so captivate our hearts that we become a people who see in accountability as a gift, generosity as an opportunity, service as a joy, community as a blessing. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to confess.